Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Monday, November the 9th. The United States of America have a new president-elect in Joe Biden. We'll be talking with Ian Lee, an economist from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, about what a Biden administration means for Canada and U.S. relations. But first, hospitals in Peel are near full capacity. Their daily case counts are rising. And I know that the mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, she's concerned about the confusion when it comes to messaging. Uh, What we're looking at uh, right now is uh, restrictions where, as of today, you can't go to lunch or dinner with anybody outside of your home. You can go to a restaurant, sure, but everybody has to be from the same address, or at least the person with them has to be a caregiver. Uh, As of... um, I believe it's Friday. Wedding receptions are going to be banned until January. No visits to people who are not in your household. You can't even go to somebody's backyard in Peel and socialize with the new restrictions. Here to talk about it is the mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown. Patrick, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Always good to be on your show. Well, you've got some concerns um, when it comes to uh, the areas where COVID is a big problem in Peel. Do you want to talk about where your uh, main concern lies? Yeah, so where, where we've seen COVID-19 really spread, I know in Toronto they talked about um, the hospitality sector. You know, I didn't have a single case of COVID-19 transmission in, in a restaurant or a gym in, in Brampton. Where we've really seen it is in industrial settings and where you have an essential worker who picks up COVID-19, they go back to their home and it causes household spread Uh, The vast, vast majority of our cases are in those industrial settings. So people working in food processing, uh, transportation, logistics, we've had a number of outbreaks. Um, And these are unsung heroes. You know, if if they weren't working, you know, Canada's supply chain would be hampered. You wouldn't have food on the uh, the grocery shelves. But we have truckers going across the border every day. You know, we are a major supplier of grocery stores uh, across across the country. And one of my frustrations is, is we're doing everything we can in terms of um, uh, encouraging people not not to household mix. But at the end of the day, we still need an isolation centre. Our application has been with the federal government for that for weeks now, over a month collecting dust. We need to make sure that these essential workers are given the support and resources that they deserve. Okay, so just for the sake of people listening right now that aren't quite familiar with an isolation centre, what's the uh, purpose of the isolation centre and why do you need it uh, now? And when you requested it, uh, you obviously say the paperwork's just sitting there. How how quickly did you think it would be processed? Well, Toronto had theirs approved the day the program was introduced. Um, So we, we expected that it would have been rapid and fast given the fact that we're one of the hotspots. So what an isolation centre is, is if you can't afford to isolate on your own or don't have any place to isolate, that the, the government has an area where you can safely isolate. Usually they, usually they take over a hotel and it's viewed as a safe zone. This has been very successful in New Zealand, in Taiwan, and, and frankly, any, any jurisdiction where they've been able to control COVID-19. And why it's so important is there are people living paycheck to paycheck. And the notion that once they test positive, um, that, that they can afford to stay in a hotel for 14 days is naive. And what makes it even more challenging in Peel region is we have many instances, it's quite common to have multiple generations of a family living together. So we have many households that have up to 15 people living in that same household. And so we really need to get that support. I, 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 you know, we've spoken to the federal minister, Patty Haydu, about this. 
Um, it's working effectively in Toronto for some of the most vulnerable in Toronto, and we need to make sure we get that in Peel too. Okay, so uh, when it comes to industrial settings where you said there there's a, a big problem with uh, COVID outbreaks, are, are they doing all they can as far as uh, taking temperatures and things like that, screening people on a daily basis? Um, do you want to see any of those um, protocols upped? Yeah, so we are doing inspections, um, but the reality is that this, when you have a large number of people working in a confined space, um, if there's any any time that people drop their guard, uh, let their guard down, uh, maybe at, at lunchtime or on a break, it spreads like wildfire. You, you know, we had an outbreak at a factory um, warehouse in Mississauga that was our largest um, outbreak in, in Peel region. It just happened, it was like a tinderbox. And 80% of the people working in that factory in, in Mississauga were Brampton residents. And so it shows how interconnected our communities are, but it also shows why it's so critical um, to make sure that if one person tests positive, you isolate that individual and you make sure they have the ability to, 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 to do so. And far too often in our community, we have people that test positive um, who still go to work because they're scared of losing their job or worried that they, that they don't have sick benefits. And, and, and that needs to be addressed. Are you concerned about restaurants right now in uh, Brampton with the new Peel restrictions at bars and restaurants and other establishments where you can only seat, uh, if you're eating indoors, it can only be with people from the same household? Because you did bring up that you didn't feel that it was spreading. That was your area uh, of concern where it came to spread. Yeah, and so um, if I can be candid, I'm I'm tired of, of people talking about um, about restaurants and, and gyms. Um, when that's not our source of transmission in Peel. I don't have a single case where it's spread in a restaurant in, in Brampton, and yet um, that has had so much energy and so much time spent on it. I need them to actually help us where the transmission is happening, which is in industrial settings. And so, uh, you know, having 10 people in a restaurant, that's just tinkering around the edge. Um, if anything, my worry was initially that shutting restaurants down caused more social gatherings. At least in a restaurant, they were maintaining physical distance. At least they were, you know, uh, wearing a mask when they, when they were walking around. And there were some fines available with public health for those that weren't following um, the, the guidelines. Uh, you know, I, I feel restaurants is, is almost a, a sideshow to the bigger challenge we have of getting this under control in workplace settings. William Osler Health System is in gridlock. They have close to 60 patients with COVID-19 in hospital and 40 patients are suspected of having the virus I was reading uh, recently. So uh, what are you hearing from the hospital? What do they need from you? What is the message that they need to get across to people that live in Peel and in Brampton specifically? So I'm on a regular call with um, the representatives from the Osler Health System. And let me just add some context here. Uh, We've been in code gridlock for five or, or six years now. You know, a year ago, Brampton City Council declared a healthcare emergency. So to be in code gridlock seems alarming, but it's not new uh, in Brampton. It's been um, how how we function. Unfortunately, Brampton is so underfunded when it comes to provincial healthcare dollars. The provincial average per beds is 2.19 beds per thousand residents in Ontario, and Brampton is 0.96. So we have half the beds per capita, and so. COVID has really compounded that. It's really shown, it's laid bare the inequities that exist in healthcare funding in Ontario. And it's why we need to get uh, um, that second hospital uh, built. It's, it's, it's why we need to make sure we have um, a fair ratio of, of, of beds. But it certainly highlights why COVID is so dangerous in Brampton, because we don't have proper healthcare funding.
One of the things that I thought was interesting about your new rules that are stricter than those required for the red control zone that you're moving into in Peel uh, is Peel's medical officer of health has said that there's no uh, fraternizing with people outside your own household. So residents should not visit with any other household, but not even in their backyards. I mean, we've been sitting here at 20, 21 degrees for the past couple of days. You find that interesting that he would go so far as to say no visitors allowed in backyards, even safely social distance? So let me say one thing about the medical officers of health advice. These are recommendations. These are not bylaws. And so if if anyone's thinking there's going to be a bylaw officer that knocks on your door and issues a fine, if you're you know, having a drink with your with your neighbor in the backyard, um, that's not the case. Uh, this is his advice on best practices, knowing that it's going to get cold very quickly. And so there wouldn't be much outdoor um, uh, gathering or mixing in, in backyards. It would be indoor dining. But this is advice. This is this is not a bylaw. This is not a a risk of a fine. It's advice from the medical officer of health, and it's the same thing with places of of worship. You know, his advice is where possible. You know, have have virtual gatherings, but we're not going to be going out there and finding places of of, of worship. It's general advice on on best practices from a, a physician who lives and breathes um, public health. Patrick, one of the problems with COVID-19 in this pandemic is the mixed messaging that's going on at different levels of government. Now, what I'm hearing you say is, uh, you know, the way I read it, uh, it sounds like you're telling people, you know, do what you think is the best thing to do, because this is just a a doctor who lives and breathes, uh, you know, um, being safe when it comes to you know, the pandemic, but you're not saying a bylaw officer. So that to me, if I don't want to follow along, I'm just going to ignore it. Well, the, the the reason he made it a strong recommendation and not something that he's expecting there to be fines is because he knows that it's not something that is enforceable. He's asking people to follow their, their good nature. And I think today at 1030, he's going to clarify this a little bit um, further, there, there's a difference between advice that the medical officer health gives and something that is anticipated to be a, a provincial emergency order or a municipal bylaw. And so he's asking people, he knows that it's unconstitutional to, to, to shut down places of worship, but he's still asking places of worship to be mindful of, of, of his advice. Uh, he knows that it's impossible to enforce um, neighbors not mixing, but he's hoping that everyone can be more diligent knowing that it's out there in the community. Um, and and that's what this is really about. You know, there's only so many tools municipalities and medical officers of health have legally, but we really want people to understand that we have experts out there who are giving advice, and it's important that they take that advice uh, to, to heart. And, and I hope that people can tune in at 1030 when Dr. Lowe has his press conference and he, and he tries to clarify some of this. Patrick, what's your advice to, to people in Brampton as the mayor? My advice is, is, is be extra careful um, right now. We know that the number is growing. We know this is a season uh, the, uh, where it's, it, we, we anticipated a second wave. So we know um, that, it, that it's a risk out there and everyone just needs to be extra diligent. Don't, uh, have, don't mix beyond your own household where possible. I know there's cases where you've got caregivers and work obligations, but where possible, don't mix um, beyond your own household. And for those in decision-making in, in Ottawa, I'll, I'll repeat this for the third time, we need an isolation centre. Nothing will make a bigger difference than actually getting an isolation centre for our vulnerable workers. All right. Do you already have a, a place that you've uh, earmarked for we the have, isolation yeah, centre? It, it, it's all in the application that, that Ottawa received in, in early September. How many beds? 
Um, right now, we'd be taking over a hotel, um, and for obvious reasons, they don't disclose the location of the of the of, of the hotel. But we believed it would it would equip uh, Peel Region properly. All right, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you so much. Cheers. That's Patrick Brown, Mayor of Brampton. The Bible tells us: to everything, there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. That is Joe Biden, of course, on Saturday night at his his acceptance speech when he became president-elect of the United States of America. I was reading over the weekend um, a Nobel economist, uh, Paul Krugman, uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times, and he said there are, I suppose, some people who still imagine that if and when Donald Trump leaves office, he wrote this last month, we'll see a rebirth of civility and cooperation in U.S. politics. They are, of course, hopelessly naive. I would imagine we're one of the nations that want a rebirth of civility and cooperation. So uh, here to talk about it, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Ian, do you agree with Paul? Is there some sort of naive naiveness going on? I'm going to give you a very sort of split answer, Um, and and not because I'm sitting on the fence, I assure you. I I think the toxicity of the past two or three years is going to largely disappear. But before anyone thinks I'm suggesting that the lambs are going to lay down with the lions and they're all going to hug each other and sing kumbaya, I am absolutely not saying that, because I think what's going to happen is that it's going to go from sort of the personal ad hominem, personal attacks on each other, the name-calling and all that stuff. That's going to, I think, largely disappear, but it's going to be replaced by some really serious fights over really serious issues. And I'm talking things like carbon tax. I'm talking things like mileage standards. Obama had put them in. Uh, at the very end of his administration and the car industry, and they weren't being nasty or anything. I mean, they were just such a radical increase. Trucks, 55 miles a gallon. Well, <laughs> the physics don't allow a truck to get 55 miles a gallon. And and where I'm going with this, uh, I, I was reading some of the things he's promising to do, and I'm not even talking the Keystone Pipeline, because that'll affect Canadians, not Americans. I'm talking some of the stuff that he wants to do in the States. It's going to. I looked up the oil and gas stats, for example. 33 states of 50, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, have oil and gas operations. Employment is oil and gas is is uh, 10 million people in the states, 8% of GDP. And so my point is, I think that the personal rancor is going to be replaced. You know, the personal shots at each other and the name calling and all that is going to be replaced by call it ideological or policy rancor as people start to realize that some people are going to get hurt uh, by some of these policies and it's going to lead to an impact on the jobs. And when someone feels that their livelihood is at risk, uh, it can get very, very nasty. So it won't be personal stuff. It's going to be policy stuff of, you know, things like a carbon tax or mileage increase, uh, mileage increases that cannot be achieved uh, or, you know, that kind of thing. It's going to be fights, very real fights, nasty fights over the, the differing ideological agendas between um, uh, the Democrats and uh, the Republicans, I think.
Okay, Ian, let's talk about the uh, the relationship between Canada and the U.S. Um, Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs was talking with uh, the West Bloc's Mercedes Stevenson over the weekend, said there were three areas where Canada and the U.S. can collaborate, uh, coronavirus pandemic, the economy, and climate change. Um, where do you think uh, we are going to be able to work together and, and build back the best? Uh, well, I don't have any doubt on the on the coronavirus. I mean, I don't think anybody is opposed to to a vaccine. <laughs> There's no one opposed saying, "Hey, let's get more people, have more people uh, sick." Um, and that that's truly a no brainer. Um, uh, and there's already very close collaboration uh, in terms of pharma- uh, pharmaceutical companies, in terms of research, development, that sort of thing. And uh, and there's been close uh, cooperation between you know our health authorities and their health authorities. So I, I, actually, I think that's been going on for a long time. But I don't doubt that we can't increase it and do even better, uh, develop even better collaboration. So I think on that one, that's that, that it's not going to be contentious. I just cannot imagine. Yes, I know they want their vaccines for their people and we do for ours. But I mean, you know, there's 330 million Americans, there's 38 million Canadians. I mean, there's 7.7 billion people in the world. And we're the two of us are two of the wealthiest countries. And we're, you know, just a, a tiny share of the total world pop. So I don't see us as being in conflict with the Americans on anything COVID related. The, the economy, I think it's going to be, we're going to be some surprises because everyone thinks it's going to be love and lovey-dovey, um, and, and it will be. I mean, I think that there's a lot of uh, a friendship between uh, Trudeau and uh, Biden. I mean, he has a long history of knowing Canada. His first wife, who was tragically killed in a car accident, was Canadian. And he's been made many trips to Canada. He has a very good understanding of Canada, a good relationship with Mr. Trudeau. But I, I, the Congress, <laughs> I keep talking about the Democratic House. And let me tell you, <laughs> there are some people in there that, um, that are uh, uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, that are very hostile to trade. Uh, they're they're ardent protectionists, and they don't feel the love for me uh, and you and Canadians. Uh, uh, they don't like trade agreements. Remember, it was the majority of the Democrats who uh, Bill Clinton uh, voted against Bill Clinton's NAFTA agreement. People can say that's 30 years ago. May I remind everybody that the first NAFTA agreement that that Trump came up with was shot down by whom? the Democratic Congress of Nancy Pelosi. She said, not good enough. We want more domestic protection of our industries. That hasn't gone away. And so I I could see very quickly uh, conflict emerging uh, between Canada and the states, even if it's against what Biden wants, because the Congress acts independently of the president. They're independent political entrepreneurs. It's not like Canada where the prime minister must sign your nomination papers or you're out of drummed out of the party. That power doesn't exist in the states. The president does not sign the nomination papers of a candidate to become a Democratic uh, candidate for Congress or Senate mm-hmm. or House. And so my point is that he's going to quickly find that the, the House has a mind of its own. And in fact, if anything, they're going to want even more aggressive protectionist measures than was in NAFTA. They're now talking about a measure that they can sign that will impose tariffs on foreign countries that don't have environmental standards that the Congress believes is sufficient. Well, that's backdoor protectionism because it allows you to, you know, wear the mantle of the environment around you to keep out the foreign goods. 
So I think there could be conflict coming down the road on that file. And then finally, very quickly on the environmental file, um, you know, he said he's going to kill the Keystone Pipeline, which is going to hurt us, not them, because it's our oil that's going to the states through the Keystone Pipeline. So there's still going to be conflict ahead. How does the Biden administration possibly change the fate of the two Michaels that are in in China, have been detained there since December uh, 2018? Because, you know, as we've said, you have spent a lot of time in China. Yes, I have. I I, I think that the uh, Biden... This is my take, and I don't have any. I mean, I read everything, you know, because I follow American politics. Because the United States has such an enormous impact on our country, and my own sister is an American, has raised her family there for 35 years, and I've been across the border. I don't know hundreds of times in my life, literally, and I did two sabbaticals living in the states, um, and and I've, I've been teaching in China since 1997. But I think Biden is going to want to, especially in the first hundred days, he's going to want everything he does is going to be anti-Trump, if you know what I mean. This is not what Trump did, so I'm doing it sort of thing. So he's going to want to show that he's not Trump, that he can get along with people, and that he's going to want to come to some kind of a, not an agreement with the Chinese, but uh, lower the temperature. And he's going to try to reestablish, reset the relationship, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, And so I think that um, if Xi, President Xi of China is uh, strategic, he will listen to the outreach from the Biden people. And, um, and if Biden puts it on the agenda, I want those people released, then that will be our the Canadian salvation, because I've said it's going to be a political solution, not a legal solution that gets them out of China. And Biden has the clout as the president of the largest economy in the world, the world superpower, to he has leverage with the Chinese that we cannot possibly imagine ever having with the Chinese because we're very small. So what I'm suggesting is I would not be shocked if uh, uh, Biden reaches out and uh, to reset the switch or whatever that cliche is and uh, try and establish not not that they're buddy buddies, but reestablish the relationship that's on more civil. And and he will quietly behind the scenes possibly say to the Chinese, you've got to agree to release the two Michaels. So I, I, I'm not predicting it, but I would not be at all surprised because Biden wants to show he definitely isn't Trump. And he's going to do things very differently in terms of the tone, the tenor, the rhetoric, as well as the policies. Okay, Ian, let me ask you this final question. Um, we know that Trump's done damage to that uh, global citizen brand that America has had for years. Yeah. There are some people, including uh, the economists that I, I talked about off the top, that said, you know, even the best in the world can't unscramble these eggs. Do you agree with that? that? No, no, I don't. I, I really don't. And I, I also travel to Europe every year. I've been teaching in Europe for 30 years, since 1991, after the wall came down. I've been going there two, three, four times a year, sometimes literally eight or nine times a year. And um, the, the, what I'm trying to say is this. The, the, uh, the president, the United States is so dominant. It's the world superpower, and it is the world superpower. There's just no question about it. It dominates everything. It dominates the world culture. It dominates world conversations. It dominates it's the world's reserve currency uh, for the rest of the world. Everybody wants to hold U.S. dollars if they don't want to hold their own country's dollars, and that's basically what that means, a reserve currency. And where I'm going with this is it's, it's also a very president-centric 
uh, country. And the rest of the world's going to key on whoever's in the White House. And six months from now, people will forget, will have forgotten Donald Trump. He will not be in the conversation. People will not be talking about Donald Trump. And they'll be talking about how Biden has changed this and changed this and changed that and that and that. And the Europeans are going to be singing his praises from here to kingdom come because they love Biden and their liberal left in the Europe and, they're, and they hated Trump. And so my point being that – and he's going to do lots of symbolic stuff too. I'm not just going to say they're just going to sort of fawn over him because he got elected. He's going to do lots of symbolic stuff to set the, to, to show that there's a new guy in, in the White House. And he's going to change the rhetoric, change the conversation, change the policies, use lots of executive orders. And there's going to be trees, forests are going to be cut down about how, oh my goodness, how, look at how the world has changed. I mean, I don't think it was that bad in the first place, but, but I mean, a lot of it was rhetoric. But Biden is going to change the rhetoric, change the conversation, and people are going to forget about that. And you're going to be seeing tons of stories about how the U.S. is back and that things well are they can forget about up. that but you know it, it was a very close election when it comes to the way the american people yes. voted i know that biden received the most votes in history of an american president yes. but uh it was shocking i think we now see that the united states is uh it, it, the people are very divided can I, I i'm glad you brought this up kelly i really wanted to talk about this before we ran out of time yeah my take and my take has been quite different from most of the other pundits and um uh, our analysts uh, on this um I, I am not trying to suggest that they did not repudiate donald trump i believe the american people a majority said okay we've had enough of this guy we don't want him anymore we want to go with the other guy and they did i mean that's clear he had us what five six seven million plurality biden had a plurality of votes at the same time then people say, well, then what happened to the blue wave? Why didn't they take over the Senate? Because Americans are a center-right country. They are not a center-left country. They've never been a center-left country. Not in 250 years have they ever been a center-left country. And they saw the left running around. I'm talking the progressive left of the Democratic Party. Let's defund the police. and Let's uh, bring back sanctuary cities for illegal immigration. And they said, wait a minute. We want to get rid of Trump. But that doesn't mean we want all that nonsense. And I think that the Americans very judiciously and strategically said, we want Biden, but we don't want the progressive left. And, yeah, but I think and, the world looks on, looks on uh, and I could be wrong on this, but my perception is that the world looks to the states now and goes, aha, you guys aren't who you said you were. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you. I'm, I think that, and by the way, the congressman that was reported in Politico in Washington, they're having a screaming fit inside mm -hmm. the Democratic Congress. The moderates are attacking the AOCs and the people on the left, saying, you know, you cost us the Senate. You cost us ten seat, six to ten seats in the House. What I'm trying to say is the Americans are very centrist right they're a centrist right country. And what they repudiated, uh, they repudiated Donald Trump, who they thought was too right wing, but they did not endorse the left wing of the Democratic Party. So what they were doing in a very nuanced way was saying, we want to return to the center. We want Biden but we do not want Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, if I can make no, it really and, and I, 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 I agree with you on that. I'm just saying that I think that the, the world has looked at the states, and, and those are admirable people. They're leaders in yeah. uh, when it comes to humanitarian efforts or, you know, keeping the peace or, you know, uh, brokering deals. And I think now they look at the American people 
as not so ad- admirable at the end of the well, day. If, if, I mean, if you, what you're saying, and I'm not trying to say Biden's all just uh, all you know uh, talk and rhetoric and and uh, you know dialing down the rhetoric. There are substantive changes, but I do think that there is one thing that will continue under the Biden administration that will be unchanged. I think the American appetite for foreign wars has declined enormously. And you won't be seeing them going into Afghanistan again or Syria or anywhere in the Middle East or anywhere else around the world. I mean, they have slowly over 50 years from the time I was in my 20s, and I'm talking the Vietnam War in 1968, they have slowly, very clearly said, our days of international adventurism are over. You know, John F. Kennedy, we will do, you know, there's nothing we can't do to stop and tyrants in the world. That's gone. They're saying, you know, you want to be a tyrant in your country and, and beat the living daylights out of your own people? That's your choice. That's really what they're saying, I think. They're well, we saw not... that with Kajo, uh, uh, the, uh, journalist, um, the, the journalist. The uh, journalist, why am I, Why is his name slipping? I know it's not Kajoji, uh, but what was his name? Oh, yeah. In Saudi Arabia. Yeah, the Saudi Arabian journalist. Yeah. They're not going to go in into other countries and tell them whether it's the Chinese or the Saudis or, or any of these countries where they're really doing despicable things. <laughs> you know, we get our knickers in a knot here in Canada about the foreign, you know, the abuses, the human rights abuses. I think the Americans are, have written that off and saying, look, we're going to worry about ourselves. We're going to worry about what's going on in our own country. We're not going to worry about that, Khashoggi. And, you know, yeah. if you've got a really rotten government that goes and kills its own people like Putin, well, you can look after your own problems. All righty. Well, becoming- Ian, I have to leave it at that because we're well off topic of where we were. But yeah. uh, I appreciate getting <laughs> off topic with you. It's always fun talking with you and having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. All right. That's it for the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It will be ready for you daily as soon as Chris uploads after the show. And speaking of the show, we broadcast live Monday through Friday between 9 and noon on 640 Toronto. Have a great day.